0: Good morning everybody. Nice to see you all this morning. I'm glad to see that we are snuggling up together in the pews. That is so good. You keep each other warm now that the weather has turned cold. Let's open with a prayer and we will jump right in. The Lord be with you. you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks today. We come to you with deep gratitude for what you have done for each one of us, for this community, for our city, and for the world, and we ask that you bless us with wisdom and faith, even when times are difficult, to know your presence. Be with all those in our community, our family and our friends who need your healing touch, that they be lifted up by your presence and by our love. Continue to be with those who suffered hurt or tragedy or devastation from the tornadoes that they may receive the assistance and support that they need as they repair their homes and their lives. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Quick word before we jump in on tornado relief. Many of you know that we have been active here at St. Michael in some relief efforts. Rather than just simply direct aid. We've been partnering with some of the agencies that we have worked with over years and years to try and make sure that we're able to get aid to people who need it most. And so the three agencies that we have partnered with, North Dallas Shared Ministries, DISD, and Gateway of Grace, our agencies that we know, we've known for a long time, and we trust that their expertise will actually be able to meet some needs, not just now, but over time. And very pleased that we've raised a good amount of money, we've collected a lot of good school supplies, and we've already been able to purchase 300 school uniforms for DISD students who were displaced, particularly out of Walnut Hill Elementary. Isn't that good? Yeah. So, all that aid is really good. We will continue to connect. Um, I believe we've got a group here at the church who are going to be working with a family, a refugee family that um, Gateway of Grace has known for quite some time. Uh, They lost their apartment, and I'm sorry. I should note for anyone not familiar, Gateway of Grace is an organization through the Episcopal Diocese here that we've uh, worked with for many years, and. When families arrive in Dallas who are refugees from somewhere, Gateway of Grace is one of the agencies that can help get them settled, get them IDs, get them job training, language training, really kind of incorporate them into the Dallas community. And one of the families that had been uh, received some of that support, they had an apartment, they were working, kids were in school, all that stuff, their apartment was damaged beyond repair and they were displaced. And of course, they don't really have a safety net of sorts. And so one of the things that we will do with that family, um, the mother of the family is also very, very pregnant. And so we're going to be replacing some bedroom furniture, getting things like a crib and some baby clothes and stuff that they were already had but were lost was lost in the tornado um, and be able to keep up with them over time. So we're doing some very specific good things. And so if you've given thank you and if you haven't yet and want to contribute, then you can visit our website and do so. And we'll keep this going over the next weeks and months as we help support. In addition, there are people in this congregation who suffered loss, whether that is the annoying thing like trees fell in their yard or on a fence that need to be cleaned up, all the way to the tornado really damaged their home and they cannot live there and has to be taken down and rebuilt, everything in between. We first need to know if you know of people in the congregation who suffer damage. We've got a good list going of about, I would say 30 people who had some kind of damage. A couple who did, who will have to at least bring their house down to the studs, if not kind of start over again. Um, thankfully though, every person we know so far is, uh, how might I say this, resourced enough to actually be able to rebuild this. Um, it is super frustrating and it's sad and when you lose things, it's, it's hard. Um, but thankfully they're not, insecure in that financial sense, which is great. So what we are doing is we're bringing them all together. This this was my idea, which is funny um, be, because of the chapter nine that we're going to look at today. Um, we're going to bring everyone together on Friday afternoon for a little cocktail party because <laughs> we really just need to sit together and say, this is hard, right? And just kind of just be together, right? Because they don't need bottled water. They don't need socks. They don't, that's not what they need. What they really need is just a friend to sit with and say, this is really hard. And so we're going to bring them together. We're going to try and help them to be introduced to people in the congregation who may be able to walk beside them. I mean, one of, the, one of our members who lives by herself said, you know, I had to work with some contractors really fast I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Well, there are some people in the congregation who actually can, just as a friend, say that's actually a good, that's a good price, those are good people, that's good work, or that's a good timetable, or you can imagine just the scale of significant home damage is more than I would know how to do. And so that's part of what makes a community like a church great is the social capital where if you need a helping hand, Someone in the church can help, and that's part of the network that really makes being a part of a church even better than just the general spiritual formation. You just, you've got a friend, and so that's what we're doing more so for the people within the congregation. We, we have actually had a couple conversations, and we may continue this, with some children of members who were really scared by the storm. Or asking questions like, why would God destroy my house, right? Well, as we know, adults struggle with, God did not destroy your house, right? That's hard for adults to understand. So a five or eight or 12-year-old, that's a big, big moment. And we want to make sure that we, I hate to say capitalize on the moment, but in a way, when bad stuff happens, we get to go deeper in our faith, and that's not just the adults, but it's the children too, and so we're trying to wrap around with all the families who may have suffered whatever kind of loss, minimal to major, so just so you know, um, keep all these people in your prayers, and if you happen to be someone who could maybe help a person in the congregation in some tangible way, please let me know, because we'll try to make sure that you know who may need that help. Okay, Today, we're looking at Genesis chapters nine and 10, a reminder that our schedules on bookmarks are at all the doors. And if you want to be on our email list, please sign up. We've had new people sign up every single week this um, this fall. So it's really great to continue to build this community. I've got a couple interesting questions that I think are kind of great. The one that I'm going to address today was someone who was kind of putting some things together and they wrote to, to ask, is the writer of Genesis using Cain as a metaphor for the Israelites? Cain has broken something with God and is sent out to be a wanderer with no home. Hey, that's a good question. You know, some questions are just better than others. It's good. Um, so what this question shows is, This person is incorporating the complex idea that the Israelites have gone through the exodus out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, going into the promised land, building up a kingdom, and losing it and going into exile in Assyrian Babylon, right? All of that has already happened when they are writing these stories. I think it is a super astute observation to wonder if, Cain, in a way, is representative of the wandering that Israel actually did in the wilderness, right? We will today talk about where Canaan and the Canaanites kind of root themselves because there is this sense of when the Israelites conquered the promised land, it was ordained by God to do so. That's somewhat problematic. We'll talk about that. In addition to being preordained to go into the promised land, we, hint, we looked at this last week, or just mentioned it, where there were 12 spies that went out into Canaan, 10 of them came back and said, these people are too big, they are giant, right, the Nephilim, like we talked about last week, whereas two said, if God's with us, it's going to work because the majority ruled and they said, we're afraid and we shouldn't go into the promised land, God sent the Israelites back into the wilderness for 40 years to let that adult generation die, to then return and finally go into the promised land in a faithful way to receive the land that God had promised. That is the most dramatic ringtone That's the kind of ringtone where you will answer that phone call, right? I mean, I couldn't even ignore that phone call, right? (laughs) Um, Okay, so as the Genesis writer is writing the story of creation and the fall and the flood and all the other stuff, do read these stories as answering and addressing particular issues, right? If the Israelites are in exile, what are they wondering? Did God leave them? Did they do something wrong? If they did something wrong, can they make it right? And then how can they perhaps prevent doing that wrong thing again in the future? I mean, these are all really helpful ways to read all of these sort of early stories in Genesis, because I do think that it's, it makes great sense to say that the Israelites are explaining their own failures and renewals through each of these little moments in these early stories of Genesis. Do we know that they are doing that? No, but that's a great observation. We will today talk about this cycle of fall and renewal and fall and renewal that we've already done multiple times, even just in the first 10 chapters of Genesis. So let's jump in. Any questions about that before we go? There's another question here on the same sheet that says, does there need to be a heaven? (laughs) We'll get to that later. Okay, (laughs) let's look. At chapters 9 and 10. We are going to divide chapters 9 and 10 into three parts. First part, we're going to be looking at the new creation. New creation. Second part, the new covenant. And then third is going to be another Fall. All right, let's jump in, section one. Open to chapter nine. What I want to say before we read the actual passages is remember what we noted last week, which is these really are two stories woven together. I said last week that you had, we had two creation stories coming out of the exile. They, the Israelites ultimately kept them separate. You've got Genesis chapter one, Genesis chapter two. With the flood stories, we also have two different flood stories that for some reason were not kept separate and instead woven together. So as you read through chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, when a moment seems redundant, like didn't they just say that? Or if they said it one way, like take the animals on the ark two by two, and then they say it a different way, take clean animals on seven pairs and unclean one, what in the world is that? Well, what that really is are these two different stories trying to address two different ideas being woven together. It's actually a little easier when they're separate, but because they're woven, as we go through, just keep that in mind that it could be part of story A and part of story B. Let's look at the end of chapter 8. We started to do this last week, but I want to kind of finish it. Noah comes out of the ark, I'm sorry, 8:20. Chapter 8 verse 20. Noah comes out of the ark. He takes all the clean animals and he burns a clean animal as an offering to God on the altar. The Lord smelled the odor of the offering, and it was pleasing. And so God says, I'll never again curse the ground because of humankind, for the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. That is a really key idea. God has, in some way, noted that humanity has something in them that makes them imperfect. Evil from youth, this kind of idea could pretty quickly become original sin right? That is not a difficult connection to make. In the Hebrew, there is not, there isn't this sense of theological sinfulness. It's more so about a propensity to make bad decisions. Now, propensity for bad decisions, original sin, totally reasonable. There is a good rationale for Understanding that humans are made, at their core, sinful and need to be redeemed at some point. There is very clear reasons why early Christian theology developed this idea of sinfulness that needs to be wiped clean or you need to be saved from the sin. That's why in some of our oldest traditions, Roman Catholicism for one, newborn babies need to be baptized. There is this very short window. It was with the Jewish tradition and it was also in the Catholic tradition and other Christian groups where newborn babies are not these pure faultless things. They're born with sin and the baptism erases that sin. Um, I think most of us know that it was weird for me, I'll say, coming out of the Catholic church into the Episcopal church where baptism's kind of when convenient, right? And not in the ugly sense, but in the sense that, okay, so baby's born, and then you start to talk with your family, right? Like, when can you be here? Here are some dates. Let's make sure everybody can show up. We'll have a nice party and that sort of stuff. So if it's three, six, nine months later, no big deal, right? Because it's really about the celebration and you wanna make sure everyone can be there. Not so in the Catholic Church, because that child could die, and we don't want that child in hell. So, baby's born, baby gets baptized. I mean, you've got max, like a week or 10 days, and that baby is baptized. As a chaplain in the hospital, when I interned as one, there were two moments when babies were born, and There was a risk to their health. One was actually stillborn, and the other was born, and they weren't sure if the baby would survive, and the immediate request was to baptize the babies right there. And of course I did. Um, Did you know that any baptized person can baptize someone else? We have a ritualistic representation of that baptism, but baptism is not something preserved for ordained people. You can, in the name of the Trinity, baptize anyone with a little water. You just need water and the words, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, baptized. Occasionally we get people who will come in and say, I was I was kind of baptized, but not like really baptized. Can I really be you know, we say, "Uh, We don't re-baptize. It may not have been it may not have been as pretty or as elegant as you wanted it to be, but it's not about the aesthetic. So, if it's just a little water from the water fountain on a table, it's good. That's all you need. So, I think here in this moment, we begin to see the root of what will ultimately become the sense of we're born sinful, and then we are made clean by God's grace. God's grace then becoming the literal incarnation in Jesus, Okay? Just put a, put a pin in that, because we're going to keep on. And if you've got a question, I don't want to over, overwork that idea. Noah worships first. First thing that he does when he gets off the ark. That worship is also generous, even sacrificial. So think about it. He's only got the stuff in the ark and he takes a lot of that stuff the good stuff and sacrifices that good stuff wholly to god that is risky all right if you only got a little if you've only got finite resources and you use up a meaningful amount of those finite resources you could find yourself vulnerable insecure and yet noah does so anyway this is and will remain to now the fundamental idea around giving in gratitude to God, is that it changes us. We, our faithfulness grows and develops and becomes more solid when we give enough to feel the vulnerability, to actually rely on God. We don't like that. We don't like to rely on anyone right? There is a reason why the people so far that I know of in this congregation who suffered tornado damage still don't have to rely on anyone, because we set ourselves up to be as invulnerable as possible. That is our goal, and we find right here at the very beginning of Scripture, and it will go throughout the entirety, that actually is not good for us. It is better for us to understand and recognize our vulnerability and become strong in our faith because of that vulnerability. That's a hard idea, and I will hit it every single week in this class because it is not what most of us learned. Most of us learned giving as some kind of obligatory practice or, oh, we need, for example, what I did at the beginning. We need new uniforms for kids who lost their school, so you give. Okay, that's fine, but that should not be the primary giving. The primary giving is in order to reset our own priorities, and that's what Noah does. And that's, if we look back, what Cain didn't do. Remember? Cain gave a gift, yes, but Abel gave a first gift. Abel made himself vulnerable because he gave enough. And therefore, Abel's gift was looked on with favor, not Cain's. doesn't mean Cain's a bad person. It just means that Abel's gift actually achieved the point of the gift, whereas Cain's really didn't. Because God does not need that stuff. That's also critical. God does not need Abel and Cain's gift. God wants Cain and Abel to be changed by their giving. Abel was, Cain was not, and obviously Cain was not, right, because he killed his brother. Fast forward to Noah. Noah is giving in a vulnerable way, and that is really looked on well by God. Noah was the gifted person that allowed God to repopulate the world, recreate the world. And so Noah should be a good guy. So giving generously right after coming out of the ark is important. Let's jump into chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you shall rest on every animal of the earth and of every bird of the air and everything that creeps on the ground and on all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every morning thing I'm sorry, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And just as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. This is a little different than the creation, right? This is not just you have power and authority. It goes further. God says to Noah and his descendants, everything is for you. Fear and dread shall be in every animal, bird, and fish fear and dread of you because of your power and your authority. This is a very odd moment. It is also, we continue on, that God's word of blessing to Noah and his sons is one that will be linked to the idea of what gives life. So this is a little esoteric, but just hang with me. When a sacrifice is made, the process of a sacrifice is what amounts to bloodletting. What will ultimately become the tradition of Israel is that sacrif- sacrificial animals, birds, lambs, whatever, will be functionally drained of their blood. And then the carcass, so to speak, is given back and can be eaten. That's an interesting little note. Because what the sacrifice actually is, is the blood. Blood is life. Who gives life? God. So blood belongs to God. This will become part of kosher eating laws. You cannot eat blood. Food has to be cooked through. Blood has to be gone. You cannot touch blood. Blood makes you unclean, right? A couple of weeks ago, when we talked about this being pretty problematic for women, especially, any contact with blood makes you unclean, whether it's yours or someone else's. You're more unclean if it's someone else's, just note, but you're also unclean if it's yours. So blood is God. Blood is divine. Any kind of blood used in any way of any kind, is impure, because blood belongs to God. And that becomes part of what the sacrifice actually is. Okay, jump ahead. Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Jump to verse 16. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So beyond the fact that God is speaking in first person, which is super annoying, um, this is a very odd moment for many different ways. We're going to start with the promise. The promise is, put simply, God's never going to destroy the world again. Just nice and clean. The flood that destroyed everything will never happen again. And as a sign that it won't happen again. God put his bow in the sky. Now, you might be thinking, isn't it a rainbow? It becomes a rainbow because when it rains, we often see a rainbow to remind us not to fear the rain. Whatever, I mean, we're not fearing the rain. But the idea here is it started to rain and it kept raining and it flooded the world and everyone died. Okay, so at any point when it starts to rain, could that also be a flood again? So a rainbow that shows up when it rains is something to remind us that God will not do this again. But you notice that it's also to remind God. It's a very interesting note. There is a sense all along the way so far that God is learning. There is a very real understanding within the Old Testament tradition that God is evolving and learning and improving in a certain way as time goes on. Now, that can be somewhat problematic for us because I don't believe we like that God is, hmm, I'll say, fickle. Or uncertain or has to actually make decisions on the fly. Do I destroy the world or not? Oh, there's a rainbow, I guess not. I mean that seems a little <laughs> seems a little unstable. And so just note, whether we agree or not, the characterization of God in the Old Testament, almost the entire way through, is that God has the capacity to learn and grow and change. That what God has done might not actually be what God wished he had done. And so maybe he's not going to do that anymore. That is what the story tells us here. God destroyed the world, thought maybe that wasn't a good idea. And so God puts his bow in the sky to remind himself, oh, I guess I shouldn't destroy the world. Another note the bow that we're talking about here is actually the weapon, like a bow and arrow. So not only is it pretty, but what God's literally putting down is his weapon. That is what the Hebrew says here, that God has effectively weaponized the water to destroy the world, and that God puts down his weapon so as to not destroy. Do that again. All right. Questions about this? I agree. Okay, so I will repeat what Ann just said. Nitpicky things. If you sacrifice an animal and you only had two of them, guess which animals are now extinct, right? So that's why we do have these two threads. So logically... If this is coming out of the thread of you brought seven pairs of clean animals with you, then actually he did have some spares in order to make a sacrifice. And if over here before the flood, God actually says bring seven pairs of clean animals, God is expecting a sacrifice. It's not just... I want more of those animals on the earth once they begin to multiply and repopulate. I do think it is foreshadowing what will be the sacrifice. Also, if Noah's three sons become the fathers of the nations everywhere, then yeah, you get this genetic mess that you know everyone have like three arms and whatever. So part of... Part of what we have to do, in the same way that if it was just Adam and Eve, same problem, worse problem, maybe. Or how about, where did their wives come from? Like, I hope they had a good amount of genetic diversity. Um, None of this is meant to be literal, scientific, genetic, and whatnot. And to your point, there is a serious undermining of literalism if just we... Take it literally. I mean, you can't sacrifice one of two animals and expect that they will then have offspring. It doesn't work. And unless one's pregnant, yeah, that's... (laughs) That's a lot of hope. That's a lot of hope. All right, I saw another hand. Walking through that logically was great. Even without the logical kind of connections... I want you to really, really hear me say, people wrote these stories. They are answering questions they have about the world that they experience. Their stories of God, Can I am perfectly comfortable with saying they are inspired. But nobody is writing down conversations between people and God. That is not actually happening, and whatever people thought God said is akin to you coming and telling me that God told me to do a thing. Now, maybe you heard a voice. We can talk about that some other time, but most of the time when people tell me that, they are not literally hearing voices. They are feeling a movement inside them. Now, is that a true thing? Sure, it can be a true thing, but is that literal journalistic style record of a conversation that you had with God? Well, I don't think anyone would say yes to that. Um, Interestingly, I took a film and religion class um, when I was in grad school, and I love this class, and one of the movies that we looked at was called Household Saints. Any of you saw that movie? It is a, you can't even find this movie digitally. Like you can't find a DVD, you cannot stream it, nothing. You can buy a VHS on Amazon. Like, Thanks a lot. Um, but it was, it was this great cast of people. If you think like Mystic Pizza, y'all remember Mystic Pizza, right? It's kind of that, Long Islandy sorta of whatever and there's a you know the the one of the the father he's a butcher and you know I mean it's that kind of stuff and what happens is the mother and father are super super catholic and their daughter who is raised in a catholic school when she's a teenager begins to have visions of Jesus and at first it's amazing right? Like our daughters having visions of talking to Jesus. Like they begin to think, is she a mystic, right? Like all of these great mystics of the past, except that then Jesus starts doing things like ironing clothes with her. And I mean, it's, it begins to be like, I don't know, I, you know, is Jesus coming to like starch a shirt? That's not exactly, you know, probably the best use of his time. And so they start to realize that actually these visions of Jesus might be she is losing her mind. And ultimately, as the story goes, she's committed for what effectively becomes like a personality, mental break, schizophrenia. They never define what it is. But it raises the question, you know, if you're having conversations under a tree with Elvis, you're crazy. If you're having conversations under a tree with Jesus, well, maybe you're a mystic. Hmm. Is that, is that actually different? Like, if you literally see Jesus and he talks to you, yeah, are we okay with that? I mean, maybe. I don't want to say no, because God's able to do whatever. But I do think that there is a sense where so long as something that would be crazy in any other circumstance, insert Jesus here, then becomes legitimate, we just have to be careful. We just, that's all. And that's where community, you know, as Anglicans, that's where we get this idea of communal discernment. Because Anglicans don't really like the whole God spoke to me and now I'm going to do that thing. Now, the better way to do that is God spoke to me and told me to do that thing. What do you think? And then you kind of get your people around you, and what your people can say is, tell me more. Okay, so God said to do this, and that means your life would change in this way. Does that seem consistent with who you are and your giftedness and the way that you—and if people around you kind of affirm that message, okay, I mean, that that's good. If your friends look at you and say, oh my gosh, that sounds nothing right, you might— not have really talked to Jesus. That's that's what I'm going to say. So when it comes down to how you write a story, the Israelites are trying to answer questions that they find critically important. And the way they are answering these questions is by telling an ancient story that creates a foundation that allows them to draw the conclusions that make sense to them. If anyone were to defend a wrong that they did by creating a foundation through which that wrong is now validated, we would throw that argument out in court. That is not the way things work. We have established a way of understanding the world We used to think that there were actual facts in the world. Recent history has shown us that people have now started to dispute facts. Um, Now we trust gut instead of facts. I'm going to get off on the tangent here. So there's there's an important thing that I—this is not Bible study now. I think we should all be very aware of a material shift in the way that we see the world. We are now at a point in time in our country, now I'm talking about this is now America, where we have two conflicting ways of understanding reality. One is fundamentally what I would call expertise, and the other is gut. And we have now called into question the validity of expertise. We have called into question the, the truth of discernible, demonstrable fact. And we have called that into question because some people feel it isn't right. Excuse me, but I will, I will get on my own little high horse for a second and say there are certain things that are factual, and it does not matter how you feel. It doesn't, your feeling is completely inconsequential with certain facts, not everything. But if there are certain things that are provable, factual, whether you like it or not does not matter. Except now we have in a relatively real sense called facts into question. So, (laughs) the ancient world used to operate with feeling because it was difficult to demonstrate fact. So, until we had effectively what would be like a scientific method of sorts or even a legal structure that connected logically step to step to step in order to prove facts, You really, people, all they had was kind of how it felt, right? They're lost and in exile, and it feels bad, and God used to make them feel good. What went wrong? And so they're telling these stories in order to try and get them back to the feeling they used to have, that rootedness and that confidence and security of their faith in God. It is dangerous, in my opinion, this is now just Chris talking, it is dangerous for us to potentially slide into a way of being where no truth or fact is certain, that everything is up for grabs based on how we feel. I think that is dangerous, and I will stop before I go too far. Okay. so. To that end, no, don't clap for that. That's right. Um, so that's just, that's just me in the world. Okay, so let's look at, I'm sorry. Did you have one more question? You're good? Okay, let's look at verse 20 because that's the good stuff, all right? So chapter nine, verse 20. We've had this lovely story so far. I mean, lovely, everyone died. But besides that, Noah comes off the ark and he worships God and he sacrifices and it's generous and it's wonderful and God is happy and nothing like that's ever going to happen again and rainbow, right? It's been so nice. Verse 20, Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. All right, we all clear what just happened? Noah grew some grapes, made some wine, got so sloppy drunk that he passed out naked, And his youngest son came in, went and ran to tell his brothers, you've got to see dad. He is like naked in his tent. And his older two brothers, knowing that that is disrespectful, walked backwards with a blanket, covered Noah up, and left the tent. Okay, we good with this? We all know what just happened. Okay. This begins, not begins, this continues a cycle in Genesis of good people gone wrong. So Adam and Eve, good people, they made a bad choice, and then God gave them another chance. Cain and Abel, Cain's good people, but he made a really bad choice, and God gives him another chance. Humanity, really good people who made macro bad choices, God destroys them, but effectively gives humanity a second chance through Noah. Noah, a good person, makes a bad choice, gets sloppy drunk and naked, and then he gets ugly. And yet God will give them all a second chance. So this cycle, we are in chapter 9 and that has happened that many times. Over and over and over again. That is the scripture story. And it is funny And it is to me so deeply comforting because I am not perfect. None of us are. There are people who, and we're all a sliding scale of imperfect, right? I mean, some of us are actually a whole lot less imperfect than others. There are plenty of people we know who like make imperfection their job, right? But all along the scale, no matter what happens, God is there to give us another chance. It is that fundamental idea of grace. Nothing, nothing we can do will separate us from God's love, period. And we see that already repeated multiple times in just the first few chapters of the Bible, and it will happen again and again and again and again and again. It's never the super righteous people, the perfect people, the flawless people that God uses. Never, God always finds the messy people, redeems their mess, and then out of that redemption, they bring about God's purpose. That is every story, every time. Okay. Noah's nakedness. (laughs) This is such a weird story. Um, I think it's important for us to just take the story at face value all right? There is no metaphor happening here, all right? I I have heard multiple people talk about Noah's drunkenness as being somehow metaphorical. I don't think so. There is nothing here to indicate that he was not literally drunk, blackout, passed out, naked, okay? This is not like euphemism for something else. So, our starting place is the face value of this story. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine... <laughs> sorry, that's so funny. When Noah awoke from his wine... You know the people who wrote this story know just how this feels, right? You know, all these people are like, yeah, that, we've done that. Okay, so when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him... He said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth, and let him live in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. All right. So we've got a triplet here. Cursing Canaan, and then iterating and reiterating that Canaan will be slaves to his brother. What is interesting here is he's talking about Canaan, not Ham. So he's using his two sons' names along with his grandson's name. It should not take us much to understand what is actually being told in the story. Canaan is Ham's son, Noah's grandson. Canaan becomes The people, the descendants of Canaan, become the Canaanites. The Canaanites are the people who are living in what will be the promised land. When the Israelites come to the edge of the promised land and look out and see the giants, who are they looking at? The Canaanites. Those Canaanites, ultimately, two things happen. The Israelites will go into the, into, the land of, into the promised land, the land of Canaan, and they will slaughter the Canaanites. So on the one hand, we need some reason for that to be okay. Well, Noah cursed them, so maybe that's okay? Okay, there's that. The other is the Canaanites don't disappear. Yes, They were in the land. Yes, they were beaten, and their land was taken, but they persist as a group of people, as a tribe, and they become effectively the servants, not slaves, but the servants to the Israelites. What we get, in effect, is a system like we know. In Texas, Latino people do jobs white people don't want to do. Okay? They're not slaves but systemically there is there is a system in place in where in which we get these implicit almost casts because of tribes. And one I'm happy to go into the whole like race is a construct which is fine. So if if you're sitting there thinking, race is a contract. I got it, okay? So there's that. But functionally, we know how this works. There is an implicit understanding that the Canaanites are just the people who will do the stuff the Israelites don't want to do. They're sweeping the streets. They're cleaning the toilets. They're setting things up. They're doing all of the messy, low jobs because the Israelites don't do them. The Israelites know This is how it was. And so, as they tell the story, there is a setup for why having the system be that way is okay with God. You see, they don't want to be godless people. They don't want to be bad religious people. And so they need a religious loophole in order to maintain the status quo that they like. And that sounds so cynical. So I just want to note that the judgment here is not meant to be ugly, it's just true. People like to establish stories that uphold the kind of social structure that they are either familiar with or that they want to maintain. That's just the way humans work. And we all have inherited a culture that has done the same thing. We may not literally have done it, but we live in that kind of culture, agree or disagree. It's just just the way it is. So there is that idea with Canaan. The, The other reading of this moment that I just want to bring up is the phrase "Noah's nakedness" like exposing nakedness? Um, the The literal scripture passage is the nakedness of their father. The phrase there in Hebrew is one that is repeated in other parts of the Old Testament to identify sexual abuse. Is that interesting? There is nothing here in the story that seems to indicate that anything sexual happened at all, let alone abuse. It's just the naked guy drunk and he's naked. But to cover the nakedness of their father is what will happen later on in the story where people cover up the sexual abuse that others have done to people. The nakedness is really more about something ugly and dark and horrible than it is just physical exposure. I want to note that because part of what we will do as we go through Genesis is try to determine what the scripture actually says about certain things and what people interpret the scripture saying about certain things. That's just just so we can be sophisticated Bible studiers, that we're not just running down a set of assumptions based on what scripture says. But instead, we really do look at the literal words so we can then draw conclusions with a bit more wisdom than perhaps we were able to before. And here's one of those little moments where that phrase will come up again specifically around sexual abuse. All right. Maybe time for one question, maybe two. It's the way to kill a Bible study is to talk about sexual abuse. (laughs) Sorry, man. Um, I will leave then with chapter 10 is another one of those moments like chapter five where we are getting from one place in time to another by lots of fathers, sons, grandsons, great-grandsons, and we're just traveling toward what will ultimately be chapter 11 that we will get to next week. Thank you all. Have a great week.